Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So we get into it. We're going to start off with uh, three obituaries from the same obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. First, Barbara Greenberg Sadoff, July 21st, 1939 to February 16, 2024, author unknown. Proudly born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, Barbara graduated from Northwestern University where she met her true love and future husband, Dr. Armin Sadoff. After residing in Milwaukee while Armin attended medical school, they made their way to Los Angeles to begin a wonderful life that included teaching kindergarten at El Rodeo School in Beverly Hills, traveling to every country imaginable, dedication to the L.A. Opera and L.A. Philharmonic, building a spectacular art collection, and years of volunteering and serving as president of Friends of the Beverly Hills Public Library. Barbara is predeceased by her husband, Armin, and daughter, Donna, and is survived by children Stephen, Alyssa, Laura, Kevin, uh, Grambling, uh, beloved grandchildren Annabelle, Bridget, Rachel, Megan, and Elliot, and sisters Iris Kite and Linda Roger Howard. Funeral services will be held Thursday, February 21st, 2024 at 10 a.m. at Hillside. In lieu of flowers, please make a contribution to, in Barbara's memory to friends of the Beverly Hills Public Library. That's Barbara Greenberg Sadoff, July 21st, 1939 to February 16, 2024, author unknown. Here's another little one. Planaria Jean Price, September 6, 1943 to February 14, 2024, author unknown. Planaria Price, 80, was a passionate teacher of English to adult immigrants for over 40 years, a devoted wife to Murray Burns, a loving and loved mother to Euphronia Awakuni, and her marvelous son-in-law, Kevin Awakuni, a devoted and beloved grandmother to Jasper and Leilani Awakuni, a friend, teacher, mentor, and writer of seven books, including Claiming My Place, Coming of Age in the Shadow of the Holocaust. Planaria lived her life practicing Tikkun Olam, a Jewish lesson that one must try however one can to heal the world. A preservationist, she successfully saved and restored over 30 Victorian craftsmen and craftsmen houses in the Angelino Heights neighborhood. She lived in a Victorian for over 50 years where she delighted in frightening children every Halloween with her green face and loud cackle. Services will be held at Hollywood Forever Cemetery on Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Flowers or wreaths can be sent to the cemetery on Sunday the 25th. That was Planaria Jean Price, September 6, 1943 to February 14, 2024, author unknown. Last one here, Paul Wilkoff Bernstein, September 26, 1931 to February 9, 2024, author unknown. Born in Steubenville, Ohio, Paul grew up always interested in science. He left Ohio to attend college at Carnegie Tech Mellon and graduated with a degree in civil engineering and later received a master's in civil engineering from USC, both of which he used throughout his career in the aerospace industry. His first job took him to Baltimore, where he met his wife, Lizelle Lee Spielman. They soon moved to New York for new jobs and to start a family. In 1959, during the heydays of the aerospace industry in L.A., they headed west and in 1967 moved to Beverly Hills. By then, Paul had begun working at Hughes Aircraft Company, where he worked for 28 years. He began as a technical member 
and rose to the head of the Laboratory of Response Structure and Thermal Integrity as part of the Hughes Space and Communications Group, helping put some of the world's first communication satellites into space. After retiring from Hughes, he traveled the world with Lee, visiting over 75 countries across six continents. Much of the couple's world travels were aboard cruise ships. Their favorite cruise was along the Alaskan coast, where they were often joined by friends and family. An avid bridge player and sports fan, he was a bowler and tennis player, and later picked up lawn bowling after his knees could no longer handle the hard courts. Paul will be dearly missed and remembered for his storytelling and story jokes. He would always have a captive audience waiting in suspense for the punchline. He was incredibly smart and kept well informed of the latest news and current events. Pollard survived by his wife of 68 years, Lee, sister Lita Warshe, and brother Leonard Lenny Bernstein. Daughters Donna Steger, husband Eric, Lori Bernstein, partner Jeff, and Nancy Schultz, partner Ted, and grandchildren Simone Steger, partner Seth, Madeline Steger, and Daniel Steger, as well as many nieces and nephews. That was Paul Wilcoff Bernstein, September 26, 1931 to February 9, 2024, author unknown. And those three are from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. On to Israel. This first one from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 19, 2024. Netanyahu vows to finish the job in Gaza. An ex-general warns Hamas of a Ramadan de deadline to release the hostages or face an attack on Rafa. By Wafa Sharafa, Karim, Shaya, Shehayeb, and Melanie Lidman. Rafa Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday brushed off growing calls to halt the military offensive in Gaza vowing to finish the job as a member of his wartime cabinet threatened to invade its southernmost city if Hamas does not free remaining hostages by Ramadan. If by Ramadan our hostages are not home, the fighting will continue to the Rafa area, retired General Benny Grant been against told a conference of Jewish-American leaders. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan, expected to begin March 10, is historically a tense time in the religion. Israel's government has not publicly discussed a timeline for a ground offensive in Rafah, where more than half of the Gaza Strip's 2.3 million Palestinians have sought refuge. Gantz, part of Netanyahu's three-member wartime cabinet, represents an influential voice, but not the final word on what might lie ahead. The U.S., meanwhile, says it will veto another draft United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire. The U.S., the U.S., Israel's top ally, instead hopes to broker a ceasefire agreement and hostage release between Israel and the Hamas militant group and envisions a wider resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Netanyahu has called Hamas's demands delusional and rejected U.S. and international calls for a pathway to Palestinian statehood. His cabinet adopted a declaration Sunday saying Israel categorically rejects international edicts on a permanent arrangement with the Palestinians. It said Israel opposes any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state, which it said would grant a major prize to terror after the October 7 Hamas attack in southern Israel that triggered, triggered the latest war. Netanyahu has pushed back against international concern about a Rafa offensive, saying that residents will be evacuated to safer areas. Where they will go in largely devastated Gaza is unclear. The suggested timing for the offensive 
came as the World Health Organization chief said Southern Gaza's main medical center, Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, is not functional anymore after Israeli forces raided it last week. Israeli strikes across Gaza killed at least 18 people overnight into Sunday, according to medics and witnesses. An airstrike in Rafah overnight killed six people, including a woman and three children, and another killed five men in Khan Yunus, the main target of the offensive in southern Gaza in recent weeks. Associated Press journalists saw the bodies arrive at a hospital in Rafah. All those who were martyred were those whom the Jews had asked to move to safe places, said a bystander after the Rafah strike, Ahmad Abu Razik. In Gaza City, which suffered widespread destruction and in, the international, in the initial weeks of the war, an airstrike flattened a home, killing seven people, including three women, according to Saeed al-Afifi, a relative. Israel's military rarely comments on individual strikes and blames civilian casualties on Hamas because the militants operate in dense residential areas. The World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said a WHO team was not allowed to enter Nasser Hospital on Friday or Saturday, or Saturday to assess patients and critical medical needs. In a post on the social media platform X, he said about 200 patients remain, including 20 who need urgent referrals elsewhere. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said at least 200 militants surrendered at the hospital. He also said that Hamas in Khan Yunus is defeated and that the militant group is largely leaderless in Gaza. He gave no evidence to support the claims. The military says it is looking for the remains of hostages inside the facility and does not target doctors or patients. The Gaza Health Ministry said 70 medical personnel were among those arrested, along with patients in hospital beds. Ashraf Al-Quidra, a ministry spokesperson, said soldiers beat and stripped detainees. There was no immediate comment from the military on those allegations. The Israeli military launched its war in response to a cross-border Hamas attack on October 7 that killed about 1,200 people in Israel and took about 240 people hostage. Militants still hold about 130 hostages, a fourth of them believed to be dead. Most of the others were released during a week-long ceasefire in November. The war has killed at least 28,985 Palestinians, mostly women and children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which does not distinguish between civilians and combatants in its tally. On Sunday, it said 127 bodies were brought to the hospitals in the last 24 hours. About 80% of Gaza's residents have been driven from their homes and a quarter face starvation. Well, Abu Omar, a spokesman for the Palestinian Crossings Authority, said 123 aid trucks entered Gaza through Israel's Karim Shalom border crossing Sunday, and four trucks of cooking gas entered through the Rafah crossing with Egypt. That's well below the 500 trucks entering daily before the war. In the occupied West Bank, a shootout erupted when Israeli forces went to arrest an armed suspect in the town of Tolkarm. The military said the suspect was killed and a member of Israel's paramilitary border police was severely wounded. It described the target of the raid as a senior militant. The Palestinian Authority Health Ministry said two Palestinians were killed. 
Algeria, the Arab representative on the UN Security Council, has circulated a draft resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and unhindered humanitarian access to Gaza and rejecting the forced displacement of Palestinians. U.S. Ambassador Lyndon Thomas Greenfield said the draft will not be adopted and runs counter to Washington's efforts to end the fighting. It is critical that other parties give this process the best odds of succeeding rather than push measures that put it and the opportunity for an enduring resolution of hostilities in jeopardy, she said. The U.S., Qatar, and Egypt have spent weeks trying to broker a ceasefire and hostage release, but there's a wide gap between Israel's and Hamas's demands. Qatar said Saturday that the talks have not been progressing as expected. Hamas has said it will not release all remaining hostages without Israel ending the war and withdrawing from Gaza. It also demands the release of hundreds of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel, including top militants. That was Netanyahu vows to finish the job in Gaza by Rafa Sharafa, Karim Shayab, and Melanie Lidman from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 19, 2024. Sharafa Shayab and Lidman write for the Associated Press and reported from Rafa, Beirut, and Jerusalem, respectively. Here's a little one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 22, 2024. Israeli report details rape claims. Sexual assaults in the October 7 attack by Hamas militants were systematic, says a group of crisis centers. From the Associated Press, Tel Aviv. The Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel on Wednesday said it has found evidence of systematic and intentional rape and sexual abuse during the Hamas attack on October 7th that ignited the war in Gaza. The report said the attacks were more widespread than earlier thought, taking place at a series of locations across the southern across southern Israel. In some cases, rape was conducted in front of an audience, such as partners, family, or friends, to increase the pain and humiliation for all present, it said. Orit Saludzinow, the executive director of the association, said that in many cases, the bodies of male and female victims, including their genitals, were severely mutilated. The report published on Wednesday did not specify the number of cases it had documented or identify any victims, even anonymously. Sulitzeno said victim identification was difficult because many were killed after being assaulted, and first responders were so overwhelmed by the scale of death and destruction that they did not document signs of sexual abuse. The report's authors said they based their research on confidential and public interviews with officials and first responders, as well as media reports. Sulitzeno said that they also relied on confidential sources, but declined to say whether they had spoken to victims. An Associated Press investigation also found that sexual assault was part of an atrocity-filled rampage by the Palestinian military group Hamas and others who killed about 1,200 people, most of them civilians, and took around 240 hostages on October 7. Hamas has rejected allegations that its gunmen committed sexual assault. According to the Israeli report, which was submitted to the United Nations and UN investigators uh, carrying out similar investigation, the sexual and gender-based violence mainly occurred in four places, a music festival where over 360 people were killed, communities near the Gaza border, Israeli military bases that were overrun by Hamas, and places where hostages were held in Gaza. 
Over 100 hostages were released during a ceasefire. Some of the hostages have described being groped or mistreated by their captors. Sulit Zinnis says the purpose of the report was to document how the sexual violence was similar across multiple sites, indicating it was organized by Hamas. The association represents multiple rape crisis centers across Israel. That was Israeli report details rape claims from the Associated Press from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 22, 2024. Right, here's this one uh, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23, 2024. Israeli strikes in Gaza Strip, killing 48 people. Fears mount over humanitarian crisis in the territory. The West Bank tensions rise over violence by Wafa Sharafa and Melanie Lidman. Rafa Gaza Strip. Israeli strikes killed at least 48 people in southern and central Gaza overnight, half of them women and children, health officials said Thursday. European foreign ministers and UN agencies called for a ceasefire with alarm rising over the worsening humanitarian crisis and potential starvation in the territory. Tensions were also rising in the Israeli-occupied West Bank when three Palestinian gunmen on Thursday opened fire on morning traffic at a highway checkpoint, killing one person and wounding five people, Israeli police say. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced Thursday that the government will expand the authority given to our hostage, nego- uh, to our hostage negotiators. His comments delivered in a meeting with U.S. Middle East envoy Brett McWork signaled a small sign of progress in ceasefire talks. Benny Gantz, who sits on Israel's war cabinet with Gallant and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, said late Wednesday that new attempts are underway to reach a ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas that could pause the war in Gaza and bring the release of about 130 Israeli hostages held by the militants since their October 7 attack on southern Israel. It was the first Israeli indication of new efforts since negotiations stalled a week ago. But Gantz, a former military chief and defense minister, repeated his pledge that unless Hamas agrees to release the remaining hostages, Israel will launch a ground offensive into Gaza's southernmost town, Rafah, during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which begins around March 10. More than half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million is crowded into Rafah after fleeing, fighting, and bombardment elsewhere in the territory. Israel has said it will evacuate them before attacking but it is unclear where they would go, with much of the rest of the tiny Mediterranean enclave engulfed in combat, raising fears civilian casualties could spiral into an spiral in, Israeli, in an Israeli assault that has already killed more than 29,400 people. The heads of 13 United Nations agencies and five other aid groups issued a plea for a ceasefire late Wednesday warning that an attack on Rafah would bring mass casualties and could deal a death blow to the humanitarian operation bringing aid to Gazans, which is already on its knees. This week, the World Food Program had to halt deliveries to northern Gaza because of increasing chaos. Diseases are rampant. Famine is looming, they said, adding that aid workers are facing shelling death, shelling death movement restrictions and a breakdown of civil order. They call for the opening of more entry points for aid to the Gaza Strip, including in the North security assurances of safe passage for distribution and a release of hostages. If outbreaks of infectious disease already growing become severe, 
they could ultimately cause more deaths than the offensive, said a senior official with the World Health Organization. Infectious disease is a major concern for us in Gaza. Richard Brennan, the the WHO's regional emergency director, said at a briefing in Cairo. The foreign ministers of 26 European countries on Thursday called for a pause in fighting, leading to a longer ceasefire. They urged Israel to not take military action on Rafah that would worsen an already catastrophic humanitarian situation. Thursday's shooting came at a checkpoint on on, on a West Bank highway, where the gunman opened fire on cars in the morning rush hour traffic. An Israeli man in his 20s was killed, and the five wounded people included a pregnant woman. uh, Security forces killed two of the gunmen and detained the third, police said. Hamas in a statement Thursday praised the attack in Jerusalem and said it was a natural response to Israel's war in Gaza and raids in the West Bank and called for more attacks until they they can achieve a fully sovereign Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital. The militant group did not claim responsibility for the attack. Tensions are rising in the West Bank ahead of Ramadan, which in the past has seen increased clashes, often in connection to restrictions imposed on Palestinian worshippers going to Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem's Old City during the Holy Month. Israel's hardline national security minister, Itamar Ben-Givir, has called for tight restrictions on Muslim prayers this year, including limits on Palestinian citizens of Israel, but no final decision ha- decisions have been made. Tempers are likely to be even more volatile this year over the Gaza war and violence in the West Bank. Since the war began, the Israeli army has carried out near-nightly raids across the West Bank, arresting more than 3,200 Palestinians, including 1,350, it says, are suspected Hamas members. Almost 400 Palestinians have been killed during the operations, according to the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry. Israeli settlers have stepped up attacks on Palestinians, and there have been a number of militant shooting attacks against Israeli civilians. A flurry of seven Israeli strikes hit Rafah early Thursday, one of them flattening a large mosque and devastating much of the surrounding block. Video from the scene showed Al-Farouk Mosque pancaked to the ground with its concrete domes tumbled around it and nearby buildings shattered. Another strike hit a residential home in Rafah sheltering the Shire family, killing at least four people, including a mother and her child. Strikes in in central Gaza overnight killed 44 people, including 14 children and 8 women, according to hospital officials. Israel's bombardment and ground offensive in Gaza have killed more than 29,400 people and wounded more than 69,000, the territory's health ministry said Thursday. The ministry does not distinguish between civilians and combatants in its count, but has said around two-thirds of the dead are women and children. Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas, which has ruled Gaza since 2007, after the October 7 attack, in which militants from the territory stormed into southern Israeli communities, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapping about 240 people. About 100 hostages were released in a swap for uh, Palestinian prisoners during a week-long ceasefire in November. Israel blames civilian deaths on Hamas, saying it operates among the population. Uh, The uh, the U.S. Israel's top ally has been working with mediators Egypt and Qatar to try to broker a deal for a ceasefire 
of several months with the release of hostages. But talks stalled last week after Netanyahu rejected Hamas's demand for any hostage release, a complete end to, Gaza, to Israel's offensive in Gaza and withdrawal from its, of its troops, along with the release of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including top militants. That was Israeli strikes in Gaza, strip kill 488 people by Wafa Sharafa and Melanie Lidman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Sharafa and Lidman write for the Associated Press and reported from Rafa and Jerusalem, respectively. AP writer Karim Shehayeb in Beirut contributed to this report. All right, here's one more. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 24, 2024, Netanyahu seeks open-ended control over post-war Gaza. Palestinian leaders reject Israeli security plan, U.S. signals skepticism. From the Associated Press, Deir al-Bala, Gaza Strip. A long-awaited post-war plan by Israel's prime minister shows that his government seeks open-ended control over security and civilian affairs in the Gaza Strip that was swiftly rejected Friday by the Palestinian leaders and runs counter to Washington's vision for the war-ravaged enclave. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu presented the two-page document to his security cabinet late Thursday for approval. Deep disagreements over Gaza's future have led to increasingly public friction between Israel and the United States' its closest ally. The Biden administration seeks eventual Palestinian governance in Gaza and the Israeli-occupied West Bank as a precursor to Palestinian statehood, an outcome vehemently opposed by Netanyahu and his right-wing government. Netanyahu's plan envisions hand-picked Palestinians administering Gaza. Separately, ceasefire efforts appear to gain traction with mediators to present a new proposal at an expected high-level meeting this weekend in Paris. The U.S., Egypt, and Qatar have been struggling for weeks to find a formula that could halt Israel's devastating offensive in Gaza, but now face an unofficial deadline as the Muslim holy month of Ramadan approaches. In Gaza, Israeli airstrikes in the center and south of the territory killed at least 92 Palestinians, including children and women, overnight and into Friday, Gazan health officials and an Associated Press journalist said. An additional 24 bodies remained trapped under the rubble. After a strike leveled his apartment building in the central town of Deir al-Bala, online videos showed Mahmoud Zuaitar, a, co- a comedian well-known in Gaza for his appearances in TV commercials, rushing into the hospital, holding his, younger, his young sister, who was screaming and covered in blood. At least 25 people were killed in the strike, 16 of them women and children, officials said. Throughout the war, Zuaitar has been posting upbeat and cheerful videos on social media, joking with people about ways they endured bombardment and displacement, bracing Palestinian culture and assuring those around him that one day things will be better. Another video at the hospital showed him cradling his wounded sister in his lap. I always say, God may they not force us out of Gaza. That's how much I love it and its people, he says, crying. But it looks like they want us to leave Gaza. Earlier at the hospital, Relatives wept over bodies laid out in burial shrouds in the courtyard, and a man cradled a dead infant. The overall Palestinian death toll since the start of the war rose to more than 29,500, with nearly 70,000 people wounded, Gaza health officials said. 
the death toll amounts to close to 1.3% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million. Netanyahu's plan, while lacking specifics, marks the first time he has presented a formal post-war vision. It reiterates that Israel is determined to crush Hamas, the militant group that took power in Gaza in 2007. Polls have indicated that a majority of Palestinians don't support Hamas, but the group has deep roots in Palestinian society. Critics, including some in Israel, say the goal of eliminating Hamas is unattainable. Netanyahu's plan calls for freedom of action for Israel's military across a demilitarized Gaza after the war to thwart any security threat. It says Israel would establish a buffer zone inside Gaza, which is likely to provoke U.S. objections. The plan also envisions Gaza being governed by local officials who Israel says would not be identified with countries or entities that support terrorism and will not receive payment from them. It's not clear whether any Palestinians would agree to such a role. Over the decades, Israel has repeatedly tried and failed to set up hand-picked local Palestinian governing bodies. The Palestinian Authority, which administers pockets of the Israeli-occupied West Bank on Friday, denounced Netanyahu's plan as colonialist and racist, as saying it would, um, would amount to Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Israel withdrew its soldiers and settlers from Gaza in 2005, but maintained control of access of the territory. U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said he had not seen details of the plan, but he said any plan should be consistent with basic principles the U.S. has set, for, set, uh, set, set out for Gaza's future, including that it cannot be a platform for terrorism, there should be no Israeli reoccupation of Gaza, and the size of Gaza's territory should not be reduced. The Biden administration wants to see a reformed Palestinian Authority govern, govern the Gaza Strip, as well as the West Bank, as a step toward Palestinian statehood. It has sought to chip away at Netanyahu's resistance by holding up the prospect of the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which demands a Palestinian state as a precondition. U.S., Israeli, Qatari, and Egyptian officials are expected to meet in Paris this weekend to discuss ceasefire efforts. A senior Egyptian official said Egypt and Qatar would outline an understanding reached within Hamas that calls for a six-week ceasefire and the release of elderly and sick hostages in return for Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Hamas has demanded a halt to Israel's offensive and a withdrawal of its troops from Gaza in return for releasing all its remaining hostages. It also demands that Palestinians held by Israel, including top militants, be freed. Netanyahu has rejected those demands. That was Netanyahu seeks open-ended control over post-war Gaza from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 24, 2024. Alright, let's go into some other world news from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 21, 2024. Slow arms deliveries hurting Ukraine, Zelensky says, by Samaya Kulab. Kiev, Ukraine. Delays in weapons deliveries from Western allies to Ukraine are opening a door for Russian advances, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says, causing a very difficult fight among parts of the front line where the Kremlin's forces captured a strategic city last weekend. Zelensky and other officials have often expressed frustration at the slow pace of promised aid deliveries, especially since signs 
of fatigue have emerged two years into war. European countries are struggling to find enough stocks to send to Kiev, and U.S. aid worth $60 billion has stalled over political differences. That appears to be playing into the hands of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Even so, more help is headed to Ukraine as Sweden announced Tuesday its biggest aid package so far and Canada said it was expediting the delivery of more than 800 drones. Zelensky, in his daily video addresses Monday, said Russia has built up troops at points along the 930-mile front line, apparently aiming to pounce on perceived defensive weaknesses. They are taking advantage of delays in aid to Ukraine, he said after visiting the command post in Kupiansk in the northeastern Kharkiv region. He said Ukrainian troops are feeling the shortage of artillery, air defense systems, and long-range weapons. Ukrainian forces with, withdrew over the weekend from the strategic eastern city of Avdivka, where they had battled a Russian assault for four months despite being heavily outnumbered and outgunned. Putin on Tuesday congratulated his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, on capturing Avdivka and urged him to press Russia's advantage. Shoigu said the military had launched up to 460 strikes in the city per day, equivalent to about 200 metric tons of explosives. We got the enemy in such a state that it was that it was forced to flee the unbearable conditions, he said. But Oletsky Danilov, head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said that while the lack of ammunition is a problem, the situation on the Eastern Front is not catastrophic. We fight and will continue to fight, he told news outlet Ukrainska Pravda. We have only one request to our partners, to help with weapons, with ammunition, and with air defense. He said that Russia racked up heavy losses of troops and equipment in the fight for Avdivka. His claim could not be independently verified. Analysts expect a lull in Russian attacks in the Avdivka area. The Kremlin's forces will require time to rest and refit, the UK Minister of Defense said Tuesday. The Institute for the Study of War, a Washington think tank, also predicted an operational pause by Russia in the area. Zelensky said talks with foreign partners are focusing on how to resume and extend support. Sweden, which is poised to join NATO, said Tuesday it will donate military aid to Ukraine worth $681 million. That includes 30 boats, some of which are powerful military assault craft uh, the wep- uh, and underwater weapons. The deal also includes ammunition, leopard tanks, shoulder-borne air- anti-aircraft defense systems, anti-tank missiles, grenade launchers, hand grenades, and medical transportation vehicles. By supporting Ukraine, we are also investing in our own security, Defense Minister Paul Johnson told reporters in Stockholm. If Russia were to win this terrible war, we would have significantly greater security problems than we have today. The Canadian government said Monday that it will dispatch more than 800 drones to Ukraine starting as early as spring. They are part of a previously announced military aid package worth $370 million. Ukraine last year received $42.5 billion from foreign partners, of which $11.6 billion was in non-repayable grant aid, the country's Ministry of Finance said Tuesday.
The grant assistance came from the U.S., Japan, Norway, Germany, Spain, Finland, Switzerland, Ireland, Belgium, and Iceland, it said. The U.S. provided the largest share, $11 billion. Long-term concessional financing amounted to $30.9 billion, which included loans from the European Union, $19.5 billion, the International Monetary Fund, $4.5 billion, Japan, $3.4 billion, Canada, $1.8 billion, the UK, $1 billion, the World Bank, $660 million, and Spain, $50 million. Meanwhile, a Russian Landsat drone struck a house in Ukraine's northern Sumy region Tuesday, killing five members of one family, the regional administration said. A woman, her two sons, and two visiting relatives died as a result of a strike in Nova Sloboda, a village uh, bordering Russia. Ukraine shot down all 23 Shahed drones that Russia launched Monday night over various regions of the country, the Air Force said. Air Force its spokesman Yuri Inhat said Russian aircraft activity had dropped after Ukraine recently shot down a number of enemy warplanes. The Air Force commander, Mykola Oleshyuk, said Monday that his troops destroyed Su-34 and Su-35 bomber jets. Over the weekend, he said another Russian jet had been shot down. That was slow arms deliveries hurting Ukraine, Zelensky says, by Samaya Kula. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Kulab writes for the Associated Press. Here's a little follow-up article from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Zelensky invites Polish leaders to meet over farmers' protest. Growers' border blockade against food imports is hampering the shipment of weapons, leader says. From the Associated Press. Warsaw. Ukraine's president on Wednesday invited Poland's leaders to meet with them at, at their shared border to resolve a blockade by Polish farmers protesting Ukrainian food imports, while Polish authorities voiced concern after slogans praising Russian President Vladimir Putin and his war against Ukraine appeared at the demonstrations. The border blockade is hampering the shipment of weapons to Ukrainian soldiers, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on social media. He said he hoped the border meeting could happen before the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on Saturday. Poland's foreign ministry said it believed that extreme groups were trying to take over the farmers' protest movement, perhaps under the influence of Russian agents. Poland, a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the European Union, has been a staunch supporter of Ukraine since Russia launched its full-scale invasion on February 24, 2022, accepting unlimited numbers of refugees and providing Ukraine with weaponry. Poles, with past oppression by Moscow rooted deeply in generational memory, are largely supportive of Ukraine. But tensions have been growing as Polish farmers blame imports of Ukrainian grain and other food for pushing down prices and harming their livelihoods. Polish farmers are among farmers across Europe who have been protesting uh, competition from Ukraine as well as EU environmental policies, which they say will increase their production costs. On Tuesday, a tractor at a protest in the southern Polish region of Silesia carried a Soviet flag and a banner that said Putin put things in order with Ukraine, Brussels, and and our rulers. A photograph was published by the Gazeta Waborska Daily. Interior Minister Marcin Kierwinski called the banner scandalous, 
and said it was immediately secured by police and prosecutors were investigating. There will be no consent to such criminal activities, he said. The public promotion of a totalitarian system can be punished with up to three years in prison under Polish law. The foreign ministry in Warsaw said it notes with the greatest concern the appearance of anti-Ukrainian slogans and slogans praising Vladimir Putin and the war he is waging during the blockades. The ministry called on protest or, uh, organizers to identify and eliminate from their movement the handful of in initiators. The current situation of Polish farmers is the result of Vladimir Putin's aggression against Ukraine and the disruption of the global economy, not because Ukrainians are defending themselves against the aggression, the foreign ministry said. That was Zelensky invites Polish leaders to meet over farmers' protests from the Associated Press. Out of the World Section, the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Right, here's one more uh, world uh, world news story from the Perspective Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Denmark seeing its worst anti-Semitism levels since World War II. Nations record 121 incidents and increase that reflects a trend in Europe after the start of the Israel-Hamas war. From the Associated Press. Copenhagen. The number of anti-Semitic incidents registered in Denmark since the October 7 attack on Israel that ignited the war in Gaza has reached levels not seen since World War II, the head of the Scandinavian country's small Jewish community said Thursday. We have seen the biggest anti-Semitic wave in Denmark since 1943, when Denmark was occupied by Nazi Germany, Henri Goldstein, a head of the 1,800-strong Jewish community told the Associated Press on Thursday. That was the year about 7,200 Danish Jews were evacuated to neutral Sweden to prevent their deportation to a Nazi concentration camp, leaving almost no Jews in Denmark. The figures compiled by the Community Security Organization were on par with those reported in other European countries. Goldstein said that after October 7, we have seen anti-Semitism on steroids. We have seen a violent escalation, not least fueled by the uncontrolled spread of hatred on social media, he said, adding that in 2023, all 121 incidents were Jew hatred and not just criticisms of Israel. Of the 121 incidents, 20 were death threats, which we have not seen, which we have not not since since the 1980s, Goldstein said, referring to threats made then against two leading figures in the Jewish community, an editor-in-chief and the chief rabbi. Jews in Denmark were advised not to wear Jewish symbols openly, Goldstein said. Most of the cases involved hate messages, more than half of them online. The report mentioned only known cases of anti-Semitism, but the vast community said that the vast majority of anti-Semitic incidents are never reported. Many European countries have a registered, have registered a rise in reported anti-Semitic attacks and comments since the outbreak of the war in the Gaza Strip. Gen Denmark currently has up to 7,000 Jews. Occupied by Nazi Germany from April 1940 to May 1945, Denmark was one of the few European countries whose Jewish population was largely saved from the Holocaust. About 95% of Denmark's Jewish population managed to escape by crossing the narrow waterway in the northeast to neutral Sweden in a risky rescue mission between September and October 1943. 
that was Denmark seeing its worst anti-Semitism level since World War II from the Associated Press, added the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. And here's something more back in the United States from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Anti-Semitic cartoon Royals Harvard once again. Activists aimed to highlight the links between Black and Palestinian liberation were reignited a 1967 campus firestorm storm by Jenny Jarvet. When the Harvard Palestine Society Solidarity Committee and the Harvard African American uh, uh, Resistance Organization put together an infographic for Instagram, the goal was to showcase the historic connections between the Black and Palestinian liberation movements. They gathered old images of black activists who had been vocal advocates of the Palestinian cause, including Angela Davis and Malcolm X. They quoted Nelson Mandela, freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. And they plucked an old cartoon from the archives of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one that roiled the civil rights movement when it first appeared in 1967 and has lost none of its ability to outrage. The drawing shows a white hand marked with a dollar sign inside a star of David, tightening nooses around the necks of a black man and an Arab man. Drawn by black artist Herman Kofi Bailey, it first appeared in a SNCC newsletter alongside an article fiercely critical of Zionism, leading to charges of anti-Semitism and furious condemnation of the SNCC from Jewish community leaders. More than half a century later, the cartoon ignited another firestorm when it was posted on Instagram and reposted by Harvard faculty and staff for justice in Palestine. With professors like these, it's easy to see why we Jewish students don't feel safe in class, wrote Shabbos Alexander Kestenbaum, a Jewish student at Harvard Divinity School who sued the university last month, alleging it had failed to com combat severe and pervasive anti-Semitism on campus. This should be called what it is, Harvard Habad posted on X, reprehensible, bigoted, hateful. The pro-Palestinian activist deleted the original post Monday and reposted it without the offensive cartoon. Our mutual goals for liberation will always include the Jewish community, and we regret inadvertently including an image that played upon anti-Semitic tropes, the activist said. After Harvard issued a statement condemning the post as despicable and warning of disciplinary action, the activists published a joint statement Tuesday saying the image violated our internal standards and betrayed our fundamental values of justice and liberation. It should never have been published, they said. We wholeheartedly apologize for this immense harm we caused. There were no apologies when the cartoon was originally published in 1967. Israel was celebrating its victory in the Six-Day War when SNCC asked Bailey, who was born in Chicago and grew up in Los Angeles, to illustrate a contentious article in its summer newsletter. The Atlanta Civil Rights Group was known for its sit-ins against segregation in the Deep South, but by 1967, it had shifted to a more militant black nationalism and asked all white members to leave. In the article headlined The Palestine Problem, SNCC called Israel an illegal state. Do you know what? Do you know that Zionism, which is a worldwide nationalistic Jewish movement, organized, planned, and created the state of Israel by sending Jewish immigrants from Europe into Palestine, the heart of the Arab world, to take over land and homes belonging to the Arabs? SNCC wrote. 
In Bailey's cartoon, the hand marked with the star of David holds the ropes around the necks of American boxer Muhammad Ali and Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. In the background, an arm holding the curved machete labeled the Third World Liberation Movement prepared to cut the rope and free the men. The cartoon and the article plunge SNCC into a crisis, according to Michael R. Fishbach, a professor of history at Randolph-Macon College and author of Black Power and Palestine, Transnational Countries of Color. Donations had already dropped as SNCC purged white members. Its Atlanta headquarters would soon struggle to pay utility bills as the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith and a string of national Jewish groups denounced SNCC. Anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism, whether it comes from the Ku Klux Klan or from extremist Negro groups, SNCC included. Morris Abram, the president of the American Jewish Committee, said in 1967, referred to SNCC by its common pronunciation. But SNCC defended the cartoon. The dollar sign and the Star of David were not a statement about Jews, SNCC said in a subsequent newsletter, but symbols of Zionism strangling Arabs in the United States strangling Muhammad Ali as well as Arabs. Both signs are placed on the hand to indicate the close relationship of the United States with Zionism and U.S. support of the Zionist state, Israel, SNCC said. In internal documents, Fishbach said, FNCC leaders described the hostile reaction to the cartoon as akin to a lynching. The idea that SNCC was anti-Semitic was a big lie, SNCC argued, propagated by a wolf pack of establishment Jewish organizations and progressive Jews who were out to get SNCC's blood. You would say there's no misunderstanding. Some would say there was no misunderstanding. You're targeting Jews as money-grubbing, Fishback said. SNCC denied that. Fishback said he was somewhat stunned that Harvard students shared the cartoon in 2024. By using symbols like dollar signs and stars of David, one can well imagine that they were going to get a hostile reaction. It doesn't take a lot of thought to see that whatever you meant, this is, that this is really going to rankle people. The cartoon is just the latest controversy to engulf the Ivy League school. The day after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, at kibbutzes and a music festival, many students, alumni, and faculty were outraged when the Harvard graduate students from Palestine and the Palestine Solidarity Committee declared on social media that more than 30 student organizations hold the entire Israeli regime uh, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Israel's subsequent attacks have killed more than 29,500 Palestinians, mostly women and children, in the Gaza Strip, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory, inspiring more waves of pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Even before the latest war between Israel and Hamas, Palestinian solidarity has become one of the most vigorous political movements on American college campuses. As dueling protests erupted, critics accused university leaders of failing to respond coherently to a rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. In January, Claudine Gay resigned as Harvard president amid mounting criticism of her performance at a December 5th congressional hearing and plagiarism accusations. Harvard's interim president, Alan M. Garber, soon announced the creation of two task forces to combat anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. 
This week, Garber called the cartoon flagrantly anti-Semitic. In a letter to the campus community, he said, perpetuating vile and hateful anti-Semitic tropes or otherwise engaging in inflammatory rhetoric or sharing images that demean people on the basis of their identity is precisely the opposite of what this moment demands of us. Dove Waxman, a professor of political science and chair of Israel Studies at UCLA, found the reappearance of the cartoon depressing, showing how little progress has been made in getting people to avoid using anti-Semitic tropes. But at least, he said, Harvard activists removed the image and expressed remorse. When people are willing to apologize for invoking anti-Semitic tropes or stereotypes, we should accept that, Waxman said. Often, those who are on the left think because of their anti-racist credentials and their progressive values, they aren't going to be susceptible to the tropes deeply embedded in society, he said. They might be less careful because somehow they're under the illusion they're immune from it because of their political values. After the Harvard student activists updated their post and removed the cartoon, they stated that our mutual goals for the liberation will always include the Jewish community. In a separate apology, they vowed to educate our membership about anti-Semitism in all its forms, including imagery and tropes that harm Jewish communities. Some critics are quick to note, however, that the Harvard activists replaced their offensive cartoon with a photo of the late Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, a black nationalist and former SNCC leader who has long been accused of anti-Semitism. In the 1980s, Ture, T-U-R-E, became infamous for stating the only good Zionist is a dead Zionist. Many students and faculty are tired of the heightened emotional rhetoric sweeping U.S. campuses, a style of arguing that one observer of higher education described this month as the hyperbol hyperbolic style in American academia, breathless de uh, declaratory at, one, at once aggressive and aggrieved. On Wednesday, the Harvard Crimson published an editorial titled The Anti-Semitic Cartoon is Everything Wrong with Discourse on Campus. It called on students and faculty to move past the, cha uh, the chanting and shouting and build a new campus discourse that could replace this pain, anger, and unease with empathy and a willingness to learn. It's time to talk to each other, to be mindful of what we say and how we say it, to engage in the best intentions and see the best intentions in others, to seek out uncomfortable conversations with courage and humility, the editorial board wrote. Imperfect, frustrating, and slippery as it is, discourse is often all we have. That was anti-Semitic cartoon Royals Harvard once again by Jenny Jarvey from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times. Saturday, February 24th, 2024. All right, on to other news. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Panel seeks larger fine for Moonves. An $11,250 settlement with XCB's boss is too low, LA Ethics Commission says. By Dakota Smith and Meg James. The Los Angeles City Ethics Commission has unanimously rejected a proposed settlement between the city and former CBS executive Leslie Moonves, saying a tougher penalty is warranted for the executive, who has been accused of interfering with the police investigation into sexual assault allegations against him. Moonves 
has agreed to pay an $11,250 fine to settle a city ethics commission complaint that accused him of inducing a government official to violate laws so that Moonves would have a tactical advantage in a police complaint against him. The uh, ethics commission staff worked with Moonves on the proposed fine, but it still needed approval by the volunteer panel that oversees the department. Jeffrey Dar, president of the Ethics Commission, acknowledged it was somewhat unusual for the panel to reject a proposed fine. The commissioners believed that the extremely egregious nature of the allegations warranted a stronger penalty, Dar said. Each count carried a maximum penalty of $5,000 or $15,000 for the three counts. A Moonves representative declined to comment on Wednesday's action. The matter dates to November 2027. 2017, when former Los Angeles Police Commander Cora Palka began working with Moonves and other CBS executives to allegedly bury a Los Angeles Police Department complaint made by a woman who had accused Moonves of sexual assault in the 1980s. Palka, who has since retired, was the head of the department's Hollywood station. He'd known Moonves for nearly a decade because he had been part of Moonves' security detail for... Uh, the Grammy Awards for several years. Moonves' career as head of CBS collapsed amid a winding sex scandal that came to light as part of the hashtag MeToo movement. Moonves, who stepped down from CBS in September 2018, has denied harassing or assaulting women. The ethics complaint detailed how, on November 10, 2017, a former colleague, Phyllis Golden Gottlieb, was inspired to speak out about her allegations of past dealings with the then-powerful TV executive. She drove to the Hollywood station to file a report against Moonves. Later that night, Palka called CBS officials and alerted them to the existence of Golden Gottlieb's report. Over the next few weeks, Palka, Moonves, and one of Moonves's underlings discussed strategies to thwart Golden Gottlieb's report and worked to make sure it didn't gain traction within the police department or the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, according to records in the case, which came to light in late 2022 as part of a report by New York Attorney General Letitia James. James had accused Moonves and CBS of misleading investors about the scope of the sexual harassment uncovered by C at CBS, information that was damaging to its stock. The former CBS chief was accused of three violations of the city's government ethics ordinance, which governs the conduct of city employees and forbids them from misusing or disclosing confidential information acquired through their work. Under terms of the proposed settlement, Moonves had agreed to pay an $11,250 settlement and acknowledged that he violated city laws by aiding and abetting the disclosure and misuse of the confidential information. He also admitted to inducing a city official to misuse his position to attempt to create a private advantage for himself. The ethics complaint also had accused Moonves of violating the city ordinance by inducing Palka to create from Moonves the private advantages of access to confidential information from an LAPD investigation. Golden Gottlieb died in 2022. Her children, Kathy Gottlieb Weiss, and Jim Gottlieb said in a statement that they were surprised and disappointed by the size of the proposed fine. Our mother placed her trust in the police department to conduct a fair and thorough investigation and never imagined that a police captain would allow the accused to use his connections in an attempt to derail the investigation, they said.
The Ethics Board on Wednesday also rejected a proposed $2,500 settlement with Ian Metro, Metros, the former senior vice president of talent relations and, and special events at CBS. Metros admitted he violated city law by aiding and abetting the disclosure and misuse of confidential information. Dar said the cases remain with the Enforcement Division at the Ethics Commission. The city charter lays out maximum fines for penalties, but the fines haven't been updated in decades. The city ethic, the Ethics Commission is seeking to increase the penalties, Dar said. $5,000 doesn't make sense today, particularly when you have very egregious allegations, Dar said. That was panel six larger fine for Moonves by Dakota Smith and Meg James from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, uh, February 23rd, 2024. All right, let's turn to some entertainment news now. We got two articles here from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. This first one, he had questions, Barbara answered by Glenn Whip. Barbara Streisand's 970-page memoir, My Name is Barbara, took her 10 years to complete. So it didn't seem like that much of an ask for me to spend 48 hours listening to her read it, which I did over the course of a couple of months. Exhaustive but never exhausting, dig uh, digressive, sure, but usually to find effect, intimate and honest, Barbara, I feel like we're on the first name basis now that we've spent so much time together, made for good company. I listened while making dinner, making lists of what I had heard, and by the end of it, making up for lost time, because again, 42 hours. Streisand will receive a Lifetime of Honor Saturday at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, another trophy for a woman who joined the EGOT Club long ago. Even after that deep dive into her life, I still had uh, questions, which Streisand was happy to answer by email. If you've read the book, you know she's she likes to fuss over the details. After spending so much time focusing on her voice, it felt like a novelty to zero in on her words. Here's our correspondence. Question. Barbara, it's Glenn. I listened to your memoir for more than 48 hours, so I know that you appreciate getting to the point. So let's go. Answer. First of all, I'd like to say thank you, Glenn, for listening to all 48 hours of my audiobook. Question. You often talked about how you hated attending awards shows, tracing it back to walking across the, uh, the, uh, the stage at your high school graduation and feeling eyes upon you. Did writing the memoir help you work through that? Is that why you're going to the SAG Awards? Answer. Well, I'm attending this award show because they told me in advance that I got the award. No trauma or drama. And I'm very proud to be a member of SAG since 1961. I also like the fact that Fran Drescher and so many actors marched and worked very hard to get what they campaigned for. Question. Any other reasons you agreed to show? Answer. The numbers were right. My lucky number is 24. The number 2 and the number 4. And this award falls on 2-24-24. Question. As an actor, do you say you, you, say you, will, you try to find a connection to the character you're playing? What character did you feel most connected to? Answer. I guess Fanny Bryson, funny girl. She wasn't the conventional leading lady. She spoke up when she thought something wasn't right for her, and she wasn't so much out of life, just like me when I played that part. Question. And what character most challenged you to find that connection? Answer. Dolly Levy in Hello, Dolly. I was too young for the role, and was far from who I am. Question. 
The level of detail in your memoir is remarkable. Did you write in journals throughout your life? I'm half joking, but when you mentioned the shot in The Princess of Tides of the little girl dragging a blanket and how it reminded you of your own baby blanket that you'd rub while sucking your thumb to put yourself to sleep, I thought, I wonder if little baby Barbara wrote about it in her journal. Answer, baby Barbara couldn't write. Question, it's a ridiculous thought, but the image crossed my mind. And had it, and I had it because of the exceptional specific detail of the book. Answer: Yes, I've written uh, many. Uh, I've written many journals. Some were called observations. They were just my thoughts, and I needed to write them down. I noticed that I wrote more during the making of my movies, especially when I was directing. By the way, it was fascinating to watch my three-year-old granddaughter trying to disconnect from the need to suck her own thumb while holding a blanket. I understand the feeling and really empathize with her. Question: Talking about being overlooked by the Oscars for directing Yentl and the Prince of Tides, you use the word snub. For the Prince of Tides, you noted that the movie had been nominated for Best Picture, but that you had not had not as its director. So what's going on here? You wondered. People were asking the same question this year about Greta Gerwig and Barbie. Do you think the director's branch of the Academy is still a bit of a boys' club? Answer: I think a bit, and it's also odd that there are ten best films at the Academy Awards, but only five director no directors nominated. How can that be? A director is responsible artistically for his or her movie, so maybe they should have just one category. Every best picture should could also come with best director attached. Bradley Cooper also wasn't nominated for best director, even though his picture Maestro was. Question. You wrote of a story where someone asked if they should become a become an actor. You answer. If you have to ask that question, then the answer is no. Can you remember the specific moment and that passion was ignited for you? And do you think there's a chance it might be ignited again? Answer. I do remember. It was when I first saw Marlon Brando when I was thirteen. I had to be. I had to become an actress. There was no turning back. Acting had to be a passion that you can't ignore. It's like a calling. If it's like, if it's just a simple decision, like be between one career and another, forget it. You have to be strong enough to take the kind of rejection actors get. And as far as me acting again is concerned, I'll never say never again. Question: I can't remember the awards show, but on one occasion, you had to borrow a friend's size eight and a half pair of heels because yours wouldn't fit. Is that the most screwball moment you've ever had attending a ceremony? Answer: It was the American Society of Cinematographers Board of Governors Award in 2015. I loved getting that award because it gave me the opportunity to honor the cinematographers whom I loved and were such an important part of my career. Nowadays, to get back to the heels, the shoes are a little more comfortable because they come with platforms. They make you taller and are less painful to wear. Question: Are you double checking to make sure your shoes fit this year? Answer: I am double checking. But I know as soon as I sit down at a table, I'm going to take them off. Question: Bob Dylan says he wrote "Lay, Lady, Lay" for you. Is there a song in your catalog that you could sing that contains a message you'd also like to send to him? Also, please follow through on your impulse and collaborate with him. Answer: As a matter of fact, I was going to reach out to him this year as one of the people I'd like to make a record with. Question. You casually mentioned just once, I believe, that you may be making a documentary about your life. Are we going to have to wait another ten years to see it?
Answer, back in the early 90s, I started putting together all this historical material from the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, but then so much was going on in my life that I didn't have time to revisit it. And after 30 more years, there's much more footage to go through. But now that I've finished the book, I'm finally ready to tackle it again with a documentary team, and I don't know how long it will take. Question. Because of your father's early death, you wrote that you became obsessed with mortality. But that's not a bad thing, I think. The Dalai Lama says you can only begin a real meditation on life with a meditation on death. What do you think about that now that, the, that you've spent so many years thinking about your own life? Answer. Well, I want to think about other things now. I've always been concerned with the world and what's going on and how it feels out of control. Gun violence, climate change, women's rights, and the threat to our democracy. Question. And now for something completely different. McConnell's discontinued Brazilian coffee ice cream. That changed right after the book was published. Now I have to look it up, and I'm finding it on their website. Answer. Perhaps it's available for a limited time only, but McConnell's is so wonderful. They were thanking me for bringing so much exposure to Brazilian coffee ice cream that they sent me 24 pints, which is my stash for the year. Question. Is this the best development, uh, is this the best development to come from your memoir? If not, or even so, what would be some other things that have satisfied you since the book came out? Answer. My dreams are less anxious, anxiety ridden. I used to wake up and just write from what my thoughts or dreams were early in the morning, but now I can sleep later. I wasn't able to read other books during that 10-year period, but now I've started to really read again, and it's so lovely to get out of my own head. It's fun to inhabit other writers' minds and think about other characters in their books. And just today, my editor reminded me that I'm on the 100 Notable Books of 2023 list from the New York Times, which she said was extremely unusual for a celebrity memoir. It made me quite proud. Question, last question, and again, sorry, it's food related, sorry. Your book may be, may be may hungry. For stardom, you, were, you write of your love for going to delis, but not Jewish delis because you couldn't get your mouth around those sandwiches. What do you still, do you still feel that way? What's the best deli in LA? Answer, I still feel that way. You could feed three people with what they pack into those sandwiches. That's why I used to like Gentile delis where I could get uh, I could get pork. I used to love sliced roast pork on white bread with mayonnaise to take to my acting classes. Now I would say Brent's Deli in the Valley is very good, and they deliver. When we order from delis now, I ask them to separate the meat from the bread so I can control the amount of meat in between the two slices. And every once in a while... We sent for a goodie box from Zabar's in New York, but not the bagels. Those I get from Canada. That was He Had Questions, Barbara Answered by Glenn Whip from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. And the second one from the same calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2023, directing a theater. Jason Reitman leads an all-star team of Hollywood filmmakers in buying the village in Westwood by Josh Rottenberg. One of the most beloved movie theaters in Los Angeles, the historic Village Theater in Westwood is now under new management, and the owners include some of the biggest names in Hollywood. On Wednesday, a coalition of directors led by Jason Reitman 
announced that they had closed a deal to take over the 93-year-old movie palace that has been a favorite site for movie premieres since its opening in 1931, with a 170-foot-wide Spanish Revival-slash-Art Deco tower that has long served as a beacon for film lovers in search of old-school Hollywood glamour. Originally part of the Fox Theater's chain, the village, which was designated a historic cultural monument in 1988, has been owned and operated by the Regency Theaters Group since 2010. When the theater, used as a location of Quentin Tarantino's 1960s set Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, went up for sale last year, Reitman moved quickly to pull it together from uh, pull together fellow filmmakers to purchase it. An L.A. native and the son of the late comedy director Ivan Reitman, the director whose movies include Up in the Air and Ghostbusters Afterlife, had grown up seeing films at the Village. Reitman held the premiere of his 2007 breakout Juno at the theater. The effort to save the Village Theater, which comes as movie theaters in Los Angeles and around the country continue to face financial headwinds, brought together a diverse array of Oscar-winning filmmakers. The new owners of the theater include such directors as Christopher Nolan, J.J. Abrams, Guillermo del Toro, Christopher McQuarrie, Judd Apatow, Damien Chazelle, Steven Spielberg, Chris Columbus, Bradley Cooper, Alfonso Cuaron, Hannah Fidel, Alejandro Gonzalez, Inyaritu, James Gunn, Sion Heder, Rian, Ryan Johnson, Gil Kinnan, Karen Kusama, Justin Lin, Phil Lord, David Lowry, Chris Miller, Todd Phillips, Gina Price Blythewood, Reitman, Jay Roach, Seth Rogen, Emma Seligman, Emma Thomas, Den uh, Dennis Villanueva, Lula Wang, and Chloe Zhao. The theater, which boasts a large auditorium seating more than 1,300 people with a 70mm capable screen and upgraded sound system, will showcase a mixture of first-run films and repertory programming selected by the theater's owners. Several of the filmmakers, including Lynn Prince Blythewood, Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris, Brad Silberling, and Alexander Payne, are alumni of UCLA, which sits just a block away from the theater. Inside the house, the director plans to showcase artifacts from their personal collections, including props, wardrobe items, and film prints. In time, there are plans to add a restaurant, bar, and gallery, but the theater will remain open throughout. Reitman spoke to the Times by phone Wednesday about the inspiration behind the deal, the state of movie going, and what the future holds for the village Westwood. Question. Long before you were a director, you grew up going to the village theater. What are your early memories of being there? Answer. I genuinely remember lining up around that corner for as long as my father was taking me to movies. That was my introduction to the movie-going experience. Getting there early, lining up around the corner, and feeling like I was part of a community of people who loved movies, who could not wait to see a film on opening night, and who knew that the conversation before and after the movie was almost as important as watching the movie itself. Question. A lot of filmmakers clearly have a special place in their heart for this theater, given how many stepped up to the part of, part of this. What did the conversation start about taking, over the taking the village over? Answer. What's incredible to me is how quickly this all came together. I heard that the theater was up for sale last summer, and I remember what, that, what happened to the National Theater just a few blocks away, which closed in 2007 and was demolished. 
I also heard that one of the bidders was interested in turning it into a live musical theater venue, and another bidder was interested in turning it in, turning the interior into retail. I immediately put in a bid, and I started reaching out to directors I knew, and the response was swift, and it was positive. I think the first couple of directors I spoke to were Ryan Johnson and Guillermo del Toro, who both immediately said they were in. And the more directors I asked, the more positive feedback I got, and the more I kept hearing the same thing, which was that we unknowingly had a common vision to collectively own a movie theater that could serve as a community hub for everybody who loves movies, a place where you can grab coffee or a bite before or a drink after and love movies in every way. Question. This has obviously been a tough time for many movie theaters, particularly in L.A., and some, like the Arc-like and the Landmark, have not survived. At the same time, we're also seeing new signs of life in the local movie-going scene with, with, with theaters like the Egyptian Vidyat and Quentin Tarantino's Vista Theater and the announcement of a new film festival. How do you see your, uh, your purchase of the village in the context of all that? Answer. You know, we spent the last few years inside, and we're all relearning why we wanted, want to go out, why we want to watch sports, why we want to go out and dance. Live streaming has made it effortless to watch things at home. But in doing so, we've lost something really important, which is the habitual experience of going to the movies and watching them together. There's a reason why Christmas is the biggest movie-going movie day of the year. It's that day that you're with your family and you need to find an activity that you can do together no matter what. Movies truly bring us together. And I think this is a great moment to shine the light on how fun it is to go to the movies and how important films are for community building. Question. That community building is particularly hard in a city like L.A., but the village has been an integral part of downtown Westwood for a long time. Answer. You know there's something in the name. Westwood is a village, and this theater is called The Village. I think that's where what we all yearn for. No matter how technology, technologically advanced we get, no matter how we crave the city center, there's a part of us that always yearns for a village. This is a village for movies. Question. With so many filmmakers involved in such a diverse group, how do you envision the theater's repertory programming evolving? Answer. I think the programming is going to be a reflection of the directors, and I'm really proud of the fact that there's a very cross-generational group that represents every genre of filmmaking. This is a movie theater that is co-owned by Christopher Nolan and Emma Seligman, Steven Spielberg, and Lulu Wang. We want this to be a showcase for first-run movies on one of the biggest screens in the country with the best picture and best sound, and simultaneously, a place where you can see indie films, international film, rep house film, programmed by one of your favorite directors. Question. What ha so what happens in the months to come? Obviously, the theater will, be, will remain open, but it sounds like there are pretty ambitious plans to remake it with a restaurant and bar. Answer, dryly. Well, as you know, renovations in Los Angeles are easy. Construction is a snap. The theater is going to remain open for the foreseeable future as we finish putting together plans, but things are already in the works. We have an exciting vision that includes dining, drinking, movie-going, gallery viewing, and programming of new and old films, and we cannot wait to share that with everybody. Question. Do those plans involve acquiring other property adjacent to the theater or nearby? 
answer, laughs, do you know how hard it was to pull together a group of 30 people to buy this one building? Right now, I honestly just, I feel like I'm living in a dream. It was literally a matter of months ago that I was standing in front of this theater, wondering if I can help save it. And just a week ago, I was in the lobby with heroes of mine, directors who were among the reasons I became a director myself. And we stood together like a group of giddy kids in disbelief that we now own this theater. And that thrill is carrying me every day right now. Question. Will the repertory programming start soon? Any hint of what we can expect? Answer. It's a great question, and we can't wait to share more. I think we're going to have to find a balance. Here's what I'd say. I love what's happening in Los Angeles right now, and I'd love to see it eventually happen across the country. And with the village, we think there's an opportunity not only to have a great community home for cinema in Los Angeles, but for us to create the kind of theater that we hope one will one day exist across the country. That was Directing a Theater by Josh Rottenberg from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Now here is an article from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 13, 2024. This is called, Good and Evil's Contrast is Like Black and White. Edward Lackman, who shot El Conde, Pablo Lorraine's take on Chile's historical villain as a vampire, counts early German expressionist works as influences by Darren Jaynes. Cinematographer Edward Lackman, who started, was starting to think he'd never get to work with director Pablo Lorraine, an old acquaintance. But more than 15 years after their first meeting, El Conde, a satirical horror film that rethinks former Chilean President Augusto Pinochet, Jaime Vadel, as a vile, blood-sucking vampire, has become that occasion. After his recent Oscar nomination, along with the coveted Silver Frog Award at Camp Camera Image, the prestigious cinematography festival, Lachman is being noticed for good reason. From its opening frame, El Conde immerses viewers in a bygone black and white era, dripping in shadowy German expressionism. Lachman cites films such as F.W. Bernau's Nosferatu, 1922, Joseph von Sternberg's Shanghai Express, 1932, and Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire, 1932, as key influences on his visceral palette. Once Pablo wanted to go black and white and were dealing with the genre of vampire and gothic films, that became a touchstone to look back at these German and American expressionistic works, the New Jersey-born cinematographer 75 tells The Envelope. Pinochet came to power in 1973 and, until he was ousted in 1990, kidnapped, tortured, and murdered thousands of Chileans. Lorraine, known for his big-screen dramatizations of real-life public figures, Princess Diana in Spencer, uh, 2021, and Jacqueline Kennedy in Jackie, uh, 2016, turns Pinochet into an undead evil living and uh, evil living in a discrepant mansion in southern Chile for 250 years. The terror that Pinochet inspired is symbolic, a symbolic truth that generations of Chileans still grapple with today. I didn't want the images to take you out of what the story is really dealing with, says Lackman. It's about internal pain. Yes, it's metaphorical, who he is as a vampire, but that's exactly what he was. He lived on these people's hearts and minds that never got any retribution or healing. 
Pinochet died a wealthy man with impunity for his crimes against the society and culture he terrorized. In creating the look, technically, the cinematographer asked camera manufacturer Ari to build a first-of-its-kind large-format camera with a monochromatic sensor. To his happy surprise, they were able to deliver the request several days before principal shooting began. Deepening the aesthetic, Lackman paired his newly acquired <clears throat> RE Mini LF monochrome camera with a set of customized Baltar lenses from the 1930s, as well as a set of vintage Harrison & Harrison black and white filters. All of it rendered rich exteriors that felt foreboding and heavy even in daylight. Lackman also deployed another tool dubbed the EL Zone system, which he created. It's based on a technique used by famed landscape photographer Ansel Adams as a way to evaluate exposure. This was the first time the system could be used on film, says Lackman. The toolkit gave him the powers of a painter with a brush burnishing shadows and highlights to a fine level of detail. Production shot in six different locations across Chile, with a farm in Patagonia serving as a key setting. Interiors of the house, corridors, basement, and living room were shot first on built sets in Santiago. To light them, Lackman had to imagine what the exterior sunlight would look like months later when they eventually moved outside. When I went to scout the exteriors, they told me it would be winter with overcast light that could change very rapidly, he recalls. So I papered the windows and used curtains to, as diffusion with soft light coming in. But then, at times, I would cut holes in the diffusion to let highlights come through. For the mansion's central room, overheard fixtures provided the main source of lighting, while set fixtures like chandeliers added texture and mode. mood. For the actors, Lackman chose to keep the darkness in their eyes. Because we were lighting from the windows, I was concerned I would have to use an eye light, he says. Then I realized that these people are hiding from themselves and each other. That there's a certain darkness that these characters live in even in daylight. So I embrace lighting that things are not being revealed about themselves, and what they are hiding from are the people that they persecuted. A technocrane was used almost exclusively to find camera positions organically. The camera had a certain fluidity to it, said Lachman. Scenes depicting Pinochet flying were shot against blue screen using a color camera and then converted to black and white. But for the flying sequences with Carmencita, Paula Lugsinger, a nun seduced by Pinochet's vampire ways, the stunt was done practically with the actor hung from wires connected to a crane. The film has a sense of contrast between light and dark, youth and age, and church and state, says Lackman. She's learning to fly, and this power mirrors those in the hierarchy of the church who supported Pinochet for their, for their own power. Most vampire films deal with seduction and power, but via Lackman's thoughtful shooting and Lorraine's political dimension, El Conde represents something deeper. Now having collaborated with the director, Lackman recognizes the suffering of the Chileans. There was blood taken politically, socially, and culturally from them, he says. We have to be reminded over and over again of our own foils. The pain is eternal for them. 
That was Good and Evil's Contrast is Like Black and White by Darren James from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 13, 2024. All right, here is something from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for uh, February 20, 2024. Together, they made an epic. How the Oppenheimer cast and crew turned a brilliant script into a living, breathing biopic. Illustrations by Ricardo Santos, story by Tim Grierson. I really was not very happy at the idea it was going to be a three-hour film. Producer Emma Thomas recalls of husband Christopher Nolan's decision to make his latest movie, a drama about the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, an epic. I thought that was going to be suicide, honestly, a three-hour film in July. But she changed her mind after she read Nolan's screenplay for Oppenheimer as gripping and fleet an act, an act of storytelling as the resulting film. It grabs you by the neck and doesn't put you down until the end, at which point you can't imagine that you've just read a 180-page script. But even a brilliant script can be enhanced on set. The Envelope spoke to the film's cast and crew, including Nolan, who shared their insights into how 12 scenes of his Oscar-nominated screenplay, based on Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin's Pulitzer Prize-winning 2005 biography, American Prometheus, transformed from the page to the screen. Scene 1, Writing in Person. In First Person. The vast majority of scripts are writing in third person, but Nolan tried something radical. Putting the stage director direction in the in Oppenheimer sequences in first person. I had never seen it before, and I did not think of doing it when I started writing, he says. But as he began the screenplay, the conventional approach wasn't working. I kept wanting to write voiceover for Oppenheimer, and I knew that voiceover wasn't the answer for this film. The solution came while he was quarantining with his writer-director brother, Jonathan Nolan. I rewrote in the first person as an experiment, Nolan says. I showed it to him without telling him why, and he got it immediately. He said to me, You finally found a way to make people read the stage directions. Nolan laughs. With my projects, the stage directions are very important. They orient you in time and space. But the truth is, people reading a lot of scripts, they tend to just read the dialogue. First person suddenly made all of that incredibly important and vital seeming. Putting that in the stage directions allowed the reader to feel like they're in Oppenheimer's head. Scene 2, Strauss meets Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is partly a battle of wills between Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy, and Louis Strauss, the vindictive head of the Atomic Energy Commission played by Robert Downey Jr. The tension between the two men is laid out in their first meeting, with Strauss clearly trying to hide his insecurity around this brilliant man. I had to tap into that universal truth that even those who have achieved great success can be fraught with self-doubt, especially when juxtaposed against a towering intellect like Oppenheimer, Downey says of, the, of playing the scene. It was about peeling back the layers of a man who has climbed the ranks, who has power and influence, yet finds himself grappling with a sense of inadequacy in the face of true genius. Scene 3, Oppenheimer meets Jean. Florence Pugh's Jean Tatlock, a psychiatrist and Communist Party member, instantly entrances Oppenheimer at a party. Their crackling flirtation is as intellectual as it is sexual. It was a bit of a dance, Murphy says. Oppenheimer was peacocking a little bit for sure. They were all living in this highly intellectual world. They would show how smart they were, and he was the smartest of them all. That was my first scene with Florence. 
actually. She's got such a presence in person and on film. I don't remember it rehearsing that much. We just went straight ahead, straight into it and found the scene as we went. Scene 4. Kitty seduces Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer's other principal affair is with Kitty, Emily Blunt, who becomes his wife. He was her third husband. Their passion is cemented during a horseback ride in New Mexico. When I first read that scene, it appears like a monologue giving you the backstory of her life, Blunt says. But the more I read it, the more I was like, no, this whole thing is a seduction. It's, look how interesting I am. Look at how th these things I've done. Look at all these things I've done. Look how many men I've been with. It was this complete seduction of representing how wild she is. I decided to play her at a real clip, she said of filming that scene. She's like a whirlwind. She should come into Oppenheimer's life and just sweep everything up into the air. The only thing Nolan said, because Chris is so understated, is the most wonderful way is subdued voice. Great, I really like the play, Blunt, Blunt laughs. <clears throat> there was a simplicity to how he presents his like of something. Scene 5, Groves Recruits Oppenheimer Their first encounter was one of my favorite scenes, Murphy says, of Oppenheimer's initial meeting with Matt Damon's Leslie Groves, an Army Corps of Engineers officer, which leads to some deft verbal gamesmanship. Sometimes when you have dialogue that's good, it's about finding a rhythm that works between you and the other actor, and between you and the director, and you and the ca cameraman. You all know the meaning of the scene because you studied the script and researched it for months, so when you find a rhythm and it's just singing, that's really special. Scene 6, Jean's Death Oppenheimer is devastated that Jean died by suicide, but Kitty has no sympathy for his self-pity. The intense scene had to be shot quickly. We were losing the light, Murphy notes. I was working with Emily, who was one of my favorite actors, and I was working with Chris, and we have this trust, so we managed to get it. Sometimes, time pressure can add to what you're trying to achieve. He adds with a laugh, not always, but in that particular occasion, it worked for us. You're not overthinking it emotionally, you're just getting to the place that you need to get. Scene 7, Who Do We Bomb? Nolan's spare, sharp dialogue is presented almost verbatim in the film. But there was one crucial tweak in the scene in which the Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson, Henry L. Stimson uh, while discussing what, which Japanese cities should be targeted, mentions that the U.S. should not bomb Kyoto because he and his wife honeymooned there. The incredible thing about working with a great ensemble on True Life Story is these guys will come to set knowing more about their characters than I did, Nolan says. They'd read books, they'd done all the research, so they were able to improvise. That's one of my favorite lines of the film, and it comes from James Remar, a wonderful actor who had turned up on the day. I had written my line based on the research that I had done based on American Prometheus that Stimson had taken Kyoto off the list of possible targets because of its cultural significance to the Japanese people. But James pointed out, actually, he and his wife honeymooned there. Eventually, I realized... You should just say that. Remar delivered the new line, and it's in the final cut. As a director on set every day, I'm happy to change things, Nolan says. I'm happy to listen to people's input, then consider, can we make something better? Is there something I missed? That was a familiar process on this project, and that line is a wonderful example of it. Scene 8, Trinity. The film's show-stopping moment is the Trinity test in Los Alamos. 
Cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema, who has worked with Nolan since 2014's Interstellar, wasn't initially sure how best to de depict a bomb's fearsome, beautiful impact. I try not to pretend that I really know exactly how things are supposed to be done, he says. I'm more like, I want to play around and see what works, because we cannot recreate a nuclear explosion, we thought. How can we recreate this explosion on a much smaller scale and then film it so they, that it actually looks like it's something that is huge and magnificent? So we experimented. It's a whole mixture of scopes and sizes and ways of filming that then are put together that give us the illusion. It's only singular, it's one singular big explosion, but it's many elements that come together. Nolan's team stresses that they weren't out to make a documentary, but they did ample research, including compiling eyewitness accounts of the actual Trinity tests. They're very telling, says Van Hoytema. They are filled with a lot of detail, which gives it personality. Like the way that colors are described, how white light changes into these colors and then slowly fades out to a fire that goes off. I use that as a lighting design cue as we progress through the sequence. I'm changing the lighting color. We see the explosion projected on the faces of our bystanders, our scientists. The eyewitness accounts feed you all the eccentricities of actually witnessing something like that. Scene 9, The Aftermath of the Bombing Oppenheimer and his Los Alamos associates react in stunned silence at footage of Jap Japanese victims of the bombings, the horror of their achievement made plain. The audience doesn't see the images and the scientists are that the scientists are watching, but we actually did those awful, horrific images from Hiroshima, Murphy recalls, so you get the reaction for real. Scene 10, Roger Robb tries to intimidate Kitty. Jason Clark plays Roger Robb, the prosecutor seeking to revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance. In the script, when Robb interrogates Kitty, he tries to get her get it tries to get into her eyeline. Clark had an idea how to raise the stakes. As Blunt recalls, Jason said, I feel like I wanted to get close to her. I wanted to try a different tactic. And Chris went, Great, try it. And so Clark moved his chair aggressively close to Blunt, his character hoping to intimidate her. The scene became a sparring match between them. It became much more intimate and much uh, more tense, Blunt says. Jason's a big guy. It definitely created a reaction in me. It gave me more to play with. It's those beautiful moments on set that you live for. It's so alive and so exciting. Scene 11, Strauss's Humiliation. Hoping to be appointed Commerce Secretary, Strauss goes down in defeat, his public humiliation quick and total. In portraying Strauss, I had to delve into a deeper understanding of the character's emotional landscape, Downey says. The scene where he is confronted by his advisors after a disastrous showing before the committee is now a transformative movement for him. It's not just about the loss of his political career, but the complete upheaval of his identity and future. To get there and really bring that rawness, I had to dismantle my own ego bit by bit, by bit and lay it all out there. Author Bird marveled at how much Nolan expanded the book's chronicling of Strauss's hearings. We just have a few photographs establishing the fact that Strauss went through this confirmation hearing to be Commerce Secretary. We didn't go into the confirmation hearing at all, but Nolan pays quite a lot of attention to it. I asked him about this, and he says, 
Well, I got curious in reading the book about what happened to Strauss, so I assigned a researcher to get me the transcript of the confirmation hearing. That was something that Sherman and I didn't bother to do. Scene 12, Dreaming of the Perfect Ending I couldn't really feel comfortable with this script until I knew the ending, Nolan says. Somewhere, relatively soon, after I started writing my first draft, I woke up in the middle of the night with the ending in my head. Getting out of bed and running to his office, I wrote it out by hand. I read it again the next morning, and luckily, I could read my handwriting, and it all made sense. That's pretty much exactly how it wound up in the film. Once I had that, I felt much more confident just plowing into the material. I know I knew exactly where, I, where it was going. Murphy's haunted look at the film's finale has become iconic, but he's reticent to describe how he arrived at that moment. It's almost like if you shine a light on it, it disappears, the actor says of his process. Actors don't quite know how it happens. You really trust your director, and he or she knows when it's right. In that particular scene, we all knew it was the end of the movie, the last shot of the movie, but you can't think about that stuff too much. You just have to go through the emotion. And that was Together They Made an Epic, story by Tim Grierson from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, February 20th, 2024. All right, let's start reading some articles from the Jewish Journal, February 23rd to the 29th, 2024. We start off with the editor's notes section. This is called How Covert Prepared Eli Beer for October 7 by David Suisa. I remember meeting Eli Beer four years ago in Los Angeles, a few Fridays before he hosted a gala for Friends of United Hatzala of Israel. We were at a private gathering, and Beer exuded good health and vitality, giving everyone big hugs. Who knew that a few weeks later in Miami, Beer would be grave, become gravely ill with COVID-19, and be bracing himself for a second induced coma and intubation in an intensive care unit. He was thousands of miles from his wife, Giddy, and their five children in Jerusalem. I was very afraid that if they put me to sleep, I won't wake up, Beer said at the time. After a harrowing month with his life hanging in the balance, Beer eventually did wake up. He recovered enough of his strength to return to his life's work, running an organization whose core mission is to save as many lives as possible. Now, four years later, I'm having coffee with beer at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I see a changed man. The massacres of October 7 have shaken him, but that's not all. His miraculous recovery from COVID has also changed him. He talks about how despondent he felt when the virus invaded his body. And he said at the time, I said goodbye to Giddy. I didn't know if this was the end. I told my children not to worry that I would come home, but in my heart, I knew my chances of making it were very low. And of course, he talks about October 7 and how hard, how hard Israel felt on that horrific day when more than a thousand murderers invaded his country. While Beer still has that spark of enthusiasm, one senses that he has mellowed, that his life has humbled him, the life has humbled him. He's been humbled by both his own brush with death and the calamity of October 7. In a way, Beer embodies the new Israel post October 7, sobered by a traumatic event but grateful to be alive and ferociously determined to come out ahead. Such determination has defined Beer since he was a teenager. At the time in 1989, Beer saw that ambulances often had trouble reaching emergency scenes in heavy Jerusalem traffic. 
So he recruited neighborhood-based volunteer medics to respond quickly to begin first aid until the ambulance arrived. That became the inspiration for the United Hatzala nonprofit he founded that is now the largest independent, fully volunteer emergency medical service in Israel. Its services are free and available to all people regardless of race, religion, or national origin. But what makes them stand out is speed. Over the years, technology has driven Hatzala's ability to improve response time. With its GPS technology and ambu cycles, it has lowered the average response time to less than 3 minutes across Israel and 90 seconds in many metropolitan areas. With this urgency comes a need for calm. Fear himself talks with an inner calm which fits his work. Indeed, the very mission of the emergency responder calls is uh, for the opposite of panic for a fanatical obsession with saving a life. Emotions are a luxury. But Beer is overcome with emotion when he talks about October 7 and his organization's response to that darkest of days. As if to seek support, he hands me a new book titled Angels in Orange, Uplifting Stories of Courage, Faith, and Miracles from the United Hatzalah Heroes of October 7th by Rabbi Nachman Seltzer. An overview of the book by Rabbi Nelson Sherman captures both the horror and the heroes. When inhuman murders burst into Erez Yisrael with their guns blazing, determined to kill, maim, torture, and kidnap thousands of unarmed and defenseless Jews were forced to flee for their lives, with more than 1,200 falling victim to butchers masquerading as humans. 1,700 civilians ran as well. They ran from the safety of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Modi'in, and B'nai Brak, racing to the south to the danger not to take lives but to save them. They were the angels in orange, the volunteers of Hatzalah. Eli Beer is one of those angels. On March 20, Beer will be hosting another gala in Los Angeles, this one titled An Evening of Unity for Israel. His life and his long experience with saving lives and confronting his own mortality has prepared him for this moment. That was how COVID prepared Eli Beer for October 7th by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. We go now to the Columnist section. This is called How to Plan a Successful Anti-Israel Rally by Tabby Raphael. The following is a work of satire. Do not heed the advice offered here without previously confirming that you will enjoy depending on the context immunity while protesting at campuses office buildings, schools, funerals, daycare facilities, hospitals, and any spaces that are generally associated with goodwill and happiness, such as Manhattan's Rockefeller Center or aboard a tropical cruise ship. Hosting a meaningful social gathering is quickly devolving into a lost art. Hosting a rage-filled social gathering that manages to fulfill the dual task of dehumanizing Jews while also finding any excuse not to condemn terrorism is, however, anything but a fading practice. It is a blissful, energizing, and ever-evolving experience. And now, there is a foolproof recipe to ensure its success. Today's Israel detractors are building on the decades-long hard work of generations past, including founders of Palestinian terrorist organizations dating back to the 60s, Soviet propaganda masters of the 1970s, Arab academics who, for some reason, left the glorious tranquility of the Middle East to found anti-Western Middle Eastern studies programs at American and European universities, and most lovably, every Iranian Ayatollah who has inspiringly squashed democracy since 1979. 
Those are some big shoes to fill. Fortunately, anti-Israel activists today have found a way to fill those metaphoric shoes with heavy rocks and hurl them at the proverbial heads of anyone who was accused of being complicit in genocide or white, same thing. Hosting a meaningful anti-Israel protest that brings you and your friends together while also exasperating law enforcement and local Jewish communities is easier than ever, but it still requires some basic preparation. First, identify the location of the pogrom. I mean, the protests, the protest. The synagogues, congressional offices, and Jewish community centers are a given, but think creatively. A children's cancer hospital, outside a funeral home, or perhaps in the waiting room of a local obstetrician's office while the Jewish couple awaits news of whether their fetus will require a circumcision or not. Be ready with your condemning flags and banners as they cheerfully wave goodbye to the doctor. What a powerful message you will be sending to Jewish couples about white colonization. If your yellow Hezbollah flag is the first sight they see after leaving the ultrasound room and learning they are going to enable one more Jewish person to enter the world. And if you decide to protest outside a gender reveal party for a Jewish family that is expecting, never untie their blue or pink helium balloons and release them into the air. It is very bad for the environment. Again, creativity is, a, is key as far as a proper location is concerned. Shut down freeways, even if it means that, that emergency vehicles won't be able to drive through. Shut down airports, even if your grandmother is unable to arrive in time for her flight. She will simply have to wait a few more months to travel to Minnesota for the coronary bypass surgery. Next, prepare your invitations. Gone are the days when an invitation to a good old-fashioned Scare the Jews festival, I mean a pro-Palestinian protest, was distributed elegantly via paper invites and snail mail. Now, you may easily issue a citywide day of rage or call to a metaphoric arms within a few seconds via WhatsApp or social media. Be sure to cross-pollinate publicity uh, for your local protest with as many lo local organizations as possible. If the city of Los Angeles is hosting a lunar festival, ask local officials if you may hold an add-on event titled Justice for Palestinians and anywhere but China's Uyghurs because, let's face it, they don't really matter, right? Impassioned volunteer attendees are key to any good demonstration, whether violent or not. But as we have recently learned, volunteer attendees are also expendable. Secure paid attendees while also paying careful attention to advertisements for recruitment. I suggest the following language for an ad recruiting paid attendees for an anti-Israel rally. Wanted. Young amateur actors or actresses who possess as little knowledge about the Middle East as possible. Bonus if the individual absorbs complex geopolitical information related to the Middle East from 13-second videos on TikTok. White Jewish Israel haters get a Starbucks gift certificate. As always, when paying atten attendees, ensure that they are compensated in a timely manner. One redeemable aspect of Judaism is that it demands that workers be paid on time. Some actors may still be waiting on last week's checks and Venmo payments for their shouts and screams against Israel at the new Jewish-owned salami stand in downtown Wichita. Don't ever forget your humanity toward workers when assembling to dehumanize Jews. Bring refreshments and stay hydrated. Shouting and cursing have been scientifically linked to dry mouth, hoarse throat, and on occasion, under-eye wrinkles. Depending on the city, there may be rain, snow, or even hail. 
ensure protesters have access to zinc-based sunscreen in parts of California, Hawaii, Arizona, Florida, and Tasmania. When scaring Jewish families, students or professors, or shouting racist slogans that would be intolerable if hurled at any other minority, it is important to cover one's face. Naturally, this has nothing to do with hiding one's identity from current or future employers or school administrators. It is a matter of basic courtesy and health. During a rally of 100,000 protesters, we can only imagine how many airborne bacteria emanate from those six timeless words, from the river to the sea. The most meaningful form of political activism helps us grow as individuals. Always ensure there is enough space in your heart for the legitimate suffering of Palestinians, but never allow yourself to utter a single word about Hamas, Fatah, Iran, Hezbollah, or anyone else whose vision of peace is slightly nonconformist. It goes without saying that any attempts at dialogue with the opposing side are completely unjustifiable. Slogan language is key. Tell anyone who, was will, who will listen that you have nothing against the Jews. In fact, if there were 56 Jewish states in the world instead of one, you would oppose all of them instead of merely Israel. We both know you're an equal opportunity activist. Keep your heart open, but don't leave so much room that sympathy for Israelis or Jews will lurk in somehow. Mention nothing of the Israeli hostages. If anyone approaches you at a demonstration and begins to mumble gibberish about Israeli women being raped by Hamas, remind them that this is America and that you don't have to listen to blatant lies and defamation unless they are coming from you. Finally, years of market research and costly laboratory experimentation have proven that butane lighters are the most effective at quickly burning through Israeli and American flags, though torch lighters are also growing in popularity, but those do come with a caution. The fire may be propelled right back to the arsonist. That was How to Plan a Successful Anti-Israel Rally by Tavi Raphael from the Columnist section. Tavi Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. Follow her on X slash Twitter and Instagram at Tavi Raphael. Alright, let's conclude with a section called Sephardic Torah from the Holy Land by Rabbi Daniel Boskila. This is called an unlikely Agnon encounter one morning on the Herzliya Jerusalem train. Living in Herzliya and working in the old city of Jerusalem means I get to ride the train to work in the morning. Other than cafes, there's no better place to meet and get to know the widely diverse group of people we call Israelis. Last week on my morning commute to Jerusalem, I had a special encounter. I was on my way to teach an intelligent group of rabbis who study in our Sephardic educational center, Beit Midrash, in the Old City. The opening part of my planned lecture to them involved several quotes and reflections from Nobel Prize winner S.Y. Agnon's monumental novel, A Guest for the Night. It's no secret to my readers that I have a deep love for Agnon's writings. For those who wonder why a Sephardic rabbi reads an Eastern European writer like Agnon, that's like asking why an Ashkenazi rabbi would read a Spanish-born Sephardic rabbi named Maimonides who wrote in Arabic. All Jewish literature belongs to all Jews. As I sat on the train reading Agnon's A Guest for the Night, two stops into my commute, a gentleman boarded the train and sat opposite me. I was dressed in my signature Rabbi Boskila rabbinic garb, jeans, sneakers, a black sweater, and a scarf. The gentleman opposite me was dressed in what Israelis called Haredi garb, a long black coat and black fur hat. 
I'm clean-shaven. He has a beard and long sidelocks. I held an Agnon book. He held a volume of Talmud. Can we get more stereotypical? He looked at me with a warm smile and asked, Are you a teacher of literature? Sort of, I responded, shocked but pleasantly surprised by his question. Not formally as my vocation, but literature, especially Agnon, forms a very big part of my teachings. Here came the clincher from the mouth of those who are often branded as anti-modern. That's great. It's good to say that there are still people teaching Agnon. He was so brilliant. His literary style was so unique, and he has so much to say to us still today. For the next 45 minutes, the two of us had the most fascinating intellectual and heartfelt exchange about Agnon, Hebrew literature, mu uh, music, art, Torah, and Israeli society. The commuters were listening and watching in amazement how these two strikingly different-looking individuals were engaged in such deep thought and conversation. As we got off the train, we exchanged numbers and emails. We will meet again and continue our conversation, hoping, through our common love of Agnon, to foster Jewish unity. The train in Israel is a magical place, and Am Yisrael, jeans and black coats together, are a magical people. Shabbat Shalom. That was an unlikely Agnon encounter one morning on the Herzliya Jerusalem train by Rabbi Daniel Boskila from the Sephardic Torah from the Holy Land section. Rabbi Daniel Boskila is the International Director of the Sephardic Educational Center. And now let's conclude with some ads from the same Jewish journal. Starting with this one, Los Angeles Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same, to deliver excellence in senior care for all rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospital and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855-227-3745. Website www.lajhealth.org. Here's another one. This is your time. Sila is your place at C-I-E-L-A. Independent living, assisted living, memory care. Discover a modern resort-style retirement community in Pacific Palisades, now welcoming new residents. Luxurious residences with designer finishes, floor-deceiving windows, and stunning views. Exceptional amenities, including a state-of-the-art vitality center with a hydrotherapy spa. Fresh seasonal cuisine featuring locally sourced produce for a healthy living. Personalized care guided by licensed nurses. Visit three. Uh, visit us. Phone is 313-310-8218. Website is livecila, L-I-V-E-C-I-E-L-A dot com. All right, we go to here. Hillside Mortuary, providing compassionate and professional mortuary services to families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships, enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements. 
Website is www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced-planning. For more information about our online floral services, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral-services. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles, FD number 1358. We got this one. Executive Referral Care, Care You Can Count On. Compassionate Experience Screen, formerly Executive Home Care. Elder Care, In-Home Specialist. Hourly, Live-In, Over 24 Years of Service, Caregivers, Aids, Companions, CNA. Phone is 310-859-0440. Website, www.exehomecare.com. Jewish-owned and operated, licensed, bonded, Better Business Bureau, Bureau A-plus rated. And folks, it looks like we're about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. See you next week, everyone.